Hey, it's Flaves, and this is Climate Changers, a podcast where we celebrate the heroes who are on the front lines of creating a new and sustainable resource and energy economy. Today, my guest is Thomas Hodgman, a fellow at the Citizens Climate Lobby. Hi, Thomas. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. You've written extensively about the intersection of climate change and national security. In the last decade, the U.S. declared energy independence. But as we shift to renewables, we risk becoming dependent again. How is that? Yeah, so the main premise is that renewables are becoming incredibly cheap. Already, they're oftentimes cheaper than conventional fossil fuels, and their their price point is dropping way faster than that of, of fossil fuels. So in other words, if we don't hop on this bandwagon, we're going to lose out. Right now, our, our energy independence is based pretty much entirely on fossil fuels, something like 80% on fossil fuels. So it's going to become more and more expensive if we don't make this transition to renewables. And the problem is right now that U.S. doesn't really control much of the renewable market. We used to, but over the last 30 to 50 years, we've really conceded a lot of that market to, uh, to East Asia, particularly China. So we're putting ourselves at an energy security risk uh, if we don't really lean into renewable investment in the next several years. So how'd that happen? Because the U.S. actually invented the solar panel, right? Yeah. And we led that market forever. How did we, how did we lose our dominance? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, we used to control the solar market with a monopoly, basically. So we had 90% of the solar market in the 1970s. But then the next few administrations either didn't prioritize it or, or fought against it completely. Reagan in particular saw, saw solar power as this sort of extension of the hippie counterculture. And over the next 30 years, the US just conceded market share pretty quickly to the point where in the mid 2000s, we only had about 9% of the solar industry. So yeah, I mean, for, for both cultural and, and sort of, I guess, almost like a a lackadaisical approach to, to solar and wind investment. We've conceded market share over the last 50 years. So how can we both make this transition to clean energy while also ensuring we don't become dependent on other countries, especially our geopolitical adversaries during the transition? There's a couple of things we have to focus on. One of the issues is that renewable energy isn't just the solar panels and the wind turbines. The other major component of renewables is that storage, right? Because the wind isn't always blowing and the sun isn't always shining. And batteries require a couple different components, some of which are are critical minerals. And right now, China controls critical minerals as well. Um, They have a ton of lithium production. It's in fact, it's 10 times that of America's right now. And its lithium reserves as well are 30 times that of the United States. So it's not just that we need to build more wind turbines and solar panels, because we actually should have a decent amount of control over that. But we also need to make sure that we we think about extraction. That could mean mining. There's some other alternatives as well. Right now, uh, mining in the United States is is demonized for, for some good reasons amongst environmental groups. But we do actually need to to control some some access to, uh, to lithium and cobalt and other critical minerals um, if we want to be able to have the, the renewable capacity that we really need to, to make that transition. Do you think we have the resources to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the United States is still the most powerful and the, the wealthiest country in the world. Uh, we have lithium reserves in the United States. And, and then also we do have, we could secure access to, to lithium abroad. Also, there's, there's a lot of new technology with lithium extraction in particular. I, I'm, I'm focusing on lithium because that is probably the most important uh, mineral in, uh, in battery storage. But there's, there's the, the Salton Sea in California is one good example where there's, this good, there's a good reason to think that we could extract lithium from the brine of the sea, for example. So, and, there's, and Wall Street is investing right now billions of dollars into, into that sort of technology. So we could do it, but there is kind of a timeline attached to this. Otherwise, we're going to be scrambling and, and we don't want to be doing that. So you've challenged some of the assumptions of what you call climate liberalism. What is climate liberalism? Yes, yeah, so climate liberalism or, or just liberal internationalism generally is this idea that um, the best way to solve global problems is through international cooperation. So as that relates to, to climate change issues, 
that stuff like the Paris Treaty, the Kyoto Protocol was was uh, its its uh, predecessor, and things like climate treaties. Hope that we can kind of meet in in rooms and shake hands and say, look, let's all commit to these these emissions packs, and and we're going to reduce our emissions together. And the big blind spot that that has more than anything, well, I'd say there's two. The first one is that developing countries aren't going to prioritize environmental and climate issues, right? Countries like India, countries like Indonesia, whose uh, industrialization is bringing millions of people out of poverty in the country, aren't going to focus on, on environmental issues or poorly defined environmental goals over lifting, lifting their people out of poverty. I think the second part of it, um, and I think this is talked about probably even less, is the fact that some countries actually believe that they have something to gain from climate change, particularly countries uh, above the 55th parallel, countries like Russia, countries like Canada, countries in Scandinavia. This guy, Marshall Burke, who's the Stanford professor, has, has, has basically written the book on this. And, and he says that the U.S. could see their GDP cut by about a third due to climate impacts, but countries like Russia could see their GDP multiplied by a factor of five, they could basically, mostly because agri- the agricultural centers are going to move north as the climate warms, right? So Russia has declared Siberia their, their goal for the entire 21st century because they know that um, they, could, they stand to gain a ton economically and as a result, geopolitically from the, from the planet warming. So when we look at countries in northern latitudes like China and Russia who are likely to benefit, how do we get them on board? Instead of relying on these treaties that really don't don't bind them to, to anything legally, we have to actually be a little bit more hawkish and a little bit more aggressive with with the way that we uh, we talk about this stuff. So I, I see there being sort of two approaches, one being more passive than the other. The more passive approach, but but one that could definitely be profoundly effective and we, we surely should rely on, is just market forces, right? So we, we know that renewables are becoming um, cheaper and cheaper. They're dropping incredibly quickly in price. And, and so cu- countries, even countries like Russia and, and Canada will employ renewables more and more frequently because it's just a, it will become increasingly a cheaper option. But, but with, particularly with countries like Russia, I don't think that's enough. Um, because they have such vast oil reserves and their economy is just is so centered around fossil fuels. So so the second idea is this idea of something called a border carbon adjustment or a carbon border adjustment mechanism. There's like five different names for it depending on where you are. But it's it's the idea that countries with their own carbon price, which is basically just it's a it's a fee placed on coal, oil, or natural gas as it enters a national economy, they can levy basically a tariff on goods that come in from other countries that create carbon emissions when they're created. And so places like the European Union, who have their own domestic carbon price, can levy a tariff equivalent to the cost of their own carbon price on countries like Russia, right? So it actually makes it more expensive for Russia to export high carbon intensive goods. And that action can be profoundly effective because countries like Russia and even China, who has their own interests wrapped up in in, uh, in Russia, they, they rely pretty heavily on, on exports as part of their economy. So this can make a, a pretty pretty huge impact uh, without relying on on things like uh, like treaties, and you mentioned developing countries. Yeah, uh, they need they need fuel for development, but they're right. also going to be impacted the worst by climate change. So how True. do we get them on board? I think every country is a little bit different, right? So every country is at a different stage of industrialization, and every single country is in a slightly different place in terms of how bad those impacts of climate change will be for them. With industrializing countries, I do think that market forces are a big part of of this conversation, right? Like as developing countries want the cheapest energy. And they want it now. And and over the next couple couple years, I think we'll see renewable energy continue to drop in cost. And hopefully that will make it more attractive to industrializing countries. I do think that also border carbon adjustments again can be can be leveraged here. Again, if you make it it's money talks. And if you make fossil fuels more expensive, then countries are gonna wanna rely more on renewables. And could you talk a little bit about your work at the Citizens Climate Lobby? 
Absolutely. So yes, this is Climate Lobby. Um, it's a nonprofit, nonpartisan grassroots advocacy climate change organization. And their main thing is the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act. So I was talking earlier about border carbon adjustments and how you need your own domestic carbon pricing set up to levy that. And the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act is, it's a carbon fee, but it also on the back end, all of the money from that fee is recycled to American residents um, as an equal monthly carbon dividend. So basically it gives consumers a flat amount of cash at the end of every single month to spend as they see fit. So it's, if anyone remembers Andrew Yang during the last election cycle talking about UBI, universal basic income, it's a similar idea. Basically the, the money from the carbon tax ends up getting paid out as a flat cash amount to American citizens. We're hoping, and, and we and a lot of economists are, are behind the idea of carbon pricing as a, as a huge way to, uh, to impact a cut to emissions in the United States. There was a moment in the past couple of weeks where it looked like a climate tax could be part of the reconciliation package. What do you think the chances are now? <laughs> Look, I, in, in the United States, carbon pricing is still a massive uphill battle. And CCL knows that. I think anyone who's been fighting for carbon pricing for a long time knows that sometimes it just feels like bashing your head against the wall. It doesn't look like it's going to be included in this cycle. I mean, Manchin is clearly against it, but it's not just Manchin. It's it's a lot of Democrats, for one reason or another, haven't aligned behind uh, carbon pricing. In the U.S., it's it's tough to talk about taxes, and the carbon pricing in particular is, has had has had a tough time. But the the hope is that uh, the more we talk about stuff like carbon dividends, where money actually goes to citizens, it doesn't need to just be a Democratic coalition. But but hopefully there can be conservatives who get behind it as well. People like Mitt Romney. Uh, have have spoken pretty favorably of it, and even even people like Lindsey Graham have at, at certain points endorsed the idea of carbon pricing. Um, so we're hoping that 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 the way that the the carbon dividend is framed will have a little bit more uh, bipartisan potential than something like environmental regulations that are imposed by the EPA, which is another part of Biden's current plan. How can we get more Republicans on board? I think the carbon dividend framing is a big part of it, right? So the nature of it is that because government doesn't get to decide how to spend the money from that carbon tax, and instead it just goes to citizens, it's inherently a a smaller government approach uh, than like a pure carbon tax where the government then gets to take that money and go reinvest it however they they please. And so I, I think understanding how to frame these things in a way that uh, will be more attractive to to the, both the electorate and also Republican politicians is is pretty crucial to to passing climate policy in the U.S. What makes you optimistic that we can make this transition to a decarbonized world economy? Well, I mean, I, I think it's I think it's what, everything that we've seen over the last twenty years. I mean, the United States, despite the fact that we've really never passed any any piece major piece of climate legislation, we've been steadily reducing our emissions for like the last sixteen or seventeen years, and and a lot of countries are moving in that direction. It's it's the nature again. It's the nature of market forces are reducing the price of renewable energy. And so if you think about that being coupled with these new ideas like carbon border adjustment mechanisms with the EU, which the EU has planned to start implementing in 2023, and and carbon pricing schemes, um, and more and more international pressure to move in the direction of of net zero or or low carbon emissions, there's a lot of hope to to think that we are actually moving in the right direction. The, The question is just how quickly can we do it? Thomas, thank you for your work at the intersection of climate change and national security. And thank you for joining this episode of Climate Changers. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. Every episode of Climate Changers has a call to action posted in the show notes. Each call to action has been curated to make it easy for you to help create the changes that we discussed today. Thank you for joining Climate Changers. Until next time.